You're listening to the podcast from Emmanuel Community Church. For more information, go to emmanuelcc.co.uk. Uh, sure, it's uh, page 298. David again spares Saul's life. The, the Ziphites went to Saul at Gibbon and said, is, David, is, is not David hiding on the hill of Hamiklah, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hakilan, Hakilan, facing Jeshimon. But David stayed in the wilderness, where he saw. Um, when he saw that David, um, when he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learnt that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David sent out. Um, then, 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 then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp, with the army camped around him. Then. Um, David then asked Ahimelech, the Hittite, and Ash and and Abishai, son of Jerry, uh, son of Zeriah, um, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you," said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and, and, and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has given your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But but David said to Abishai, "Don't destroy him. Who can who can lay a hand on on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless?" As, as surely as the Lord lives, he says, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will, um, and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and the water jug near Saul's head, and they left. No one saw um, or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them in, into a deep sleep. Then, then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the hill, some, some distance away, and there was a wide space between them. He called out to the army and to the and and to Abner, son of Ner, "Aren't you going to answer me, Abner?" 
Abner replied, who are, you, um, who are you who calls to the king? David said, you're a man, aren't you? And who is you in Israel? And, and who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard the Lord your king? Someone came to destroy your Lord the king. What is, what, what, what you have done is not good. As, as surely as the Lord lives, you and your men must die because, because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you where, where, where are the king's spear and the water jug that were near his head? Saul recognized David's voice and said, is, is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, yes, it is, my lord, the king. And, and he added, why is it that my lord um, pursuing his servant? What have I, what have I done and what wrong am I guilty of? Now, now, now let my lord, the, 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 the king, listen to his servant's words. And um, if, if the lord has incited you against me, then, then may he accept it as an offering. If, however, people have done it, May then they be. Uh, may they be cursed before the Lord. They have, they have driven me today from from my share in the Lord's inheritance, and have said, "Go and serve other gods." Now, now, do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The, the, the king of Israel has come out to, to look for a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then, 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 then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today and I will not harm you again. Surely as I have acted like a fool, I have been terribly wrong. Here is the king's spear, David answered. Let, let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards every, everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord gave me into... The Lord gave you into my hands today, but, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I have, as, as surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then, 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 then David said to David, may you be blessed, David, my son. You will do great things and surely triumph. So, so
So David went on his way and Saul returned home. Psalm 19 says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Open square brackets, people just like me. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord are pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous, and we've just heard them read to us. Amen. We should be glad. The Lord's spoken to us already through his word. Why don't we pray? Father, thank you that you never leave us with ringing silence in our ears. You're a God who speaks. Thank you that you've spoken to us this morning already through your word. Thank you that your word nourishes our souls. Thank you that your word illuminates our life in the blackness of confusion. Thank you that your word Bring strength where our knees are knocking. We thank you that your word is good, always. And we thank you for this particular chapter that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe we can put the first slide on. A challenge, 1 Samuel 26, a challenge to our storied plate of spaghetti ideas. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, that sounds a little bit strange. And if you fancy, you can even try saying storied plate of spaghetti ideas. It's a little bit of a tongue twister. Why don't you try saying that to the person next to you as well? Wonderful. Now you're totally confused. Let's get going. Uh, Let me ask you a question. If I was going to ask you, what is one of the biggest objections to the reality of God? If I was to ask you, you know, imagine you were in a Christianity Explored room or you were maybe talking to a friend in a coffee shop who wasn't a Christian and they were throwing up objections to the reality of God. What would be like the big reality, the big question the big objection that they would be making to the the existence of God. I suspect the answer would be suffering. Or at least if it's not the first thing that they mention, give them 30 seconds and they'll have at least approached the subject of suffering. Here's the really bizarre thing. Michael Ramsden, for those of you, Michael Ramsden, the Oxford Centre for Christian apologetics, he spends his life traveling around the world, speaking to people about Christianity in an apologetics type of way, trying to encourage people to see that God is real. And one of his observations is that when he travels out of the West, out of the UK, out of America, 
the issue of suffering really isn't a deal breaker to the belief in God. So here in the West, the thing that would make people really object to the existence of God is suffering. Go to the vast majority of the world. It's not even on their radar. Friends, what that should make us realize is that each one of us is carrying around in our heads a storied spaghetti-like plate of ideas. And this storied spaghetti-like plate of ideas is how we interpret the world. If you were at university, people would call it a worldview. But the problem with worldviews is it sounds like a system that's all been put together in a really ordered way. But you and I know that that's not how your brain works. Your brain is way more like spaghetti. And you're hammering a bit of spaghetti together and then another bit of spaghetti and then another bit of spaghetti. And you've got this plate and you're trying to hold all of these ideas together so that you can interpret the world in which you live. And here in the West... One of those bits of spaghetti is God can't exist in a world of suffering. And yet in the rest of the world, that bit of spaghetti's fallen off the plate a long time ago. Let me give you another example. How many of you know who Martin Luther is? Maybe we can see a picture. He needs to go to the barbers, doesn't he? How many of you know who Martin Luther is? Give us a little wave, yeah, great. Martin Luther, the German priest who was born in 1483, he boldly declared to a world that had lost its way that to be a follower of Jesus, you needed salvation by faith alone. I at least thought Nay was going to say amen to that. (laughs) He kicked off this thing that we call the revolution. The revolution, well, it was a revolution, the Reformation. It's like he lit the torch, page, uh, the torch paper on this amazing transformation that was taking place that we're still feeling the effects of today. What a brilliant guy, yeah? What an amazing guy. We should all have T-shirts printed with his face on, yeah? Well, before you go and do that, let me tell you another side of Martin Luther's life. Martin Luther apparently threw ink at the devil. He refused medical um, uh, treatment because he said that his particular ailment was um, caused by satanic, it was satanically induced. He credited the devil for horrible weather storms and he credited the devil with the untimely death of his friend's horse. He describes himself as one being hounded by the devil. Luther, in his own words, almost every night when I wake up, the devil is there and wants to dispute with me. And if that's not weird enough, he then goes on and shares his remedy for these nighttime encounters. And you can actually read his quote here. I instantly chase him away with a fart. So here's the thing. I suspect many of us in the room like Martin Luther, the theologian. We like Martin Luther who's got these straight lines of theology about salvation by faith alone. However, all of the other stuff we want to throw in the medieval enchanted world wastebasket and go, that's just crazy talk. And friends, what's happening there, as you're sat listening to me, 
is this spaghettied, storied plate of ideas that you're interpreting the world that you live in and you're making judgments on Martin Luther based upon all of the spaghetti that you've put together in your head to try and interpret the world. And what you're doing is you're looking at Martin Luther and you're going, well, we like this, but that's crazy talk. That's medieval nonsense. Because we know that that's not the way the world is, right? And so we're making these assumptions about the world based upon these slithery bits of spaghetti ideas that we carry around in our heads. And then we turn to the Bible. And guess what? We do exactly the same thing with the Bible. We read the Bible and we read the stories of the Bible and we've got in our heads this like storied spaghetti plate of ideas and everything that we read verse by verse in the Bible hits this plate of spaghetti and we end up interpreting it. And the challenge is this. When we come to chapter 26 of 1 Samuel, it's just going to confront your plate of spaghetti. And if you really intentionally read chapter 26 of 1 Samuel, some of the spaghetti in your head is going to fall off the plate. I can guarantee that. Because this world that we see in 1 Samuel 26 is not the world that you and I like. The world of 1 Samuel 26 is deeply enchanted. And I'm using that word provocatively. The world we read in 1 Samuel 26 is not a rationalistic world that has got lots of straight lines that we can order carefully. It's a completely different picture of how reality looks. And so as you read this text, what's going to happen is your world is going to be confronted and you're going to find pieces of spaghetti falling off your plate and you're not going to like it. But that's what the Bible should do to us. When we talk about being people who sit under the authority of Scripture, what we're saying is we want God's Word to shape our thinking, not this weird plate of spaghetti that we've built for ourselves. You see, here's the danger. If you read 1 Samuel 28 through a modern, Western, technologically advanced way of looking at the world... The bits of this chapter that you will edit out are the bits that point to the nature of God. And by doing that, what you'll end up doing is you'll end up creating a God in your own image and the Bible calls that idolatry. That's the challenge of reading 1 Samuel 26. And so in order to help us with this, what I want to do is literally just zoom in on two very simple ideas in this passage and just kind of like try and pull the thread for you for a few minutes and then I want to, as it were, stand at the front and hopefully watch loads of spaghetti fall off your plates. Okay, that's the goal for today. Loads of spaghetti on the floor and in its place, hearts that love God more, the God of the Bible more. Because we've allowed God's word to shape how we see the world and how we see him. How does that sound? Sound okay? Here's my first idea. This passage shows us 
a world where God is pervasively present. This chapter shows us a world where God is pervasively present. Okay, some of you are going, I've not heard the word pervasive for a while. Okay, here's the illustration. Any of you who've got young children, you know when your child's nappy needs changing because there is a pervasive smell that has filled up the room. Okay, what we're saying is God's world, his whole universe is pervasively filled with himself. James K.A. Smith put it this way. Maybe we can go to the next slide. He describes God's world as enchanted, an enchanted theology. And he says the world that God inhabits is a place that is perceived, that the, sorry, that perceives the material creation as charged with the active presence of God. Friends, this is really, really offensive to our world that we're living in. This language. You see, what this is saying is, God is in the driving seat, not humanity. God is the one who is shaping his world, not humanity. God is the one who is working out his purposes, not humanity. That's the language that he's trying to reach for. And he's using this word enchanted deliberately because we don't like it. It's leading us to think about pixies at the bottom of the garden. He's leading us to think about fairies. Yet actually, the Bible is way more like that than the rationalistic world of our newspapers. And so it's pushing us to think about what does the Bible say, not what does my newspaper say. What is the world like according to God, not according to my school book and what I was taught at school? And this chapter shows us that God's world is pervasively filled up with his presence. Let me show you. Let's go to the chapter. That was my introduction, by the way. Let's go to to the chapter. Notice what happens In this chapter, we have the Ziphites. The Ziphites are introduced basically as a hook in this story. And they're always doing exactly the same thing. They're dobbing in David. Whenever they turn up, that's what they do. They just dob in David. And so then we read in these opening five verses. It's wonderful how the author does that. So he shows, he says, the Ziphites went to Saul. Verse 2, Saul went to the place where David is. Then David went, sadly the NIV messed up the translation here, David went to the wilderness. And then in verse 5, we read how David went to the place where Saul is camped. What's going on here? It's called a big old game of musical chairs on a grand scale. Everyone's moving places in this story. And then secondly, what we see here is that when David arrives at where Saul and his army have camped, it's night time, and there's these concentric circles of protection around Saul. So Saul's right in the middle. Saul's armor-bearer, his sidekick is with him, 
and then there's these concentric circles of protection. So the people right on the edge, it doesn't matter if they die. They're the ones that can get killed, but definitely not David, not Dave, definitely not Saul and Abner because they're right in the center of the camp. In fact, the author is wanting to make this really clear because twice he describes these concentric circles of protection around Saul. He's wanting us to understand Saul is in a human fortification right in the center. And then David and his sidekick break in and steal Saul's spear and jug. So in many ways, it's a story about theft, but it's not really a story about theft because what then happens is a really strange and unexpected turn of events. Firstly, David rebukes his sidekick. You see, a sidekick, they've broken into the camp, the spear is there, his sidekick is saying to David, come on, today is the day we can deal a death blow to Saul once and for all. I mean, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Doesn't it? He's been a bit of a pain, Saul, all the way through these chapters, chasing David down. It makes sense. In many ways, morally, it makes sense. Saul was a tyrannical king. He was not following the precepts that God had laid out for what it meant to be a king. So morally, it kind of made sense. Let's get rid of him. Let's roll in the next king. All will be well. And yet David does something completely different. Even though there's this echo going on in this chapter between David and Goliath, and now Saul and his spear, there's this echo going on. What I mean by that is, David chopped the head of Goliath using his own implement of war. And here... Saul's spear could have just been scooped up and impaled Saul and it would have been David and Goliath all over again. Even though that could have happened, David says this in verse, in, uh, David says this, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Or his time will come and he will die. Or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. I would not have made that speech, would you? I would have been grabbing the spear. And I would have been halfway there to impaling Saul. And yet we get this unusual turn of events. When we talk about an enchanted theology, what we're talking about is that everyday circumstances like this are filled up with the pervasive presence of God. And notice how we see this in almost every word of David's statement. Firstly, Saul is not an autonomous agent. Our world that we live in, our Western world, our rationalistic world would tell us that we are autonomous agents. We get to choose what we want to do. We get to choose our future. Here, Saul is described as the Lord's anointed. 
Who is the true king in this story? It's God himself. He's the true king. He's the one that is shaping this story. He's the one who's ultimately in charge. This is not a story that fits into our Western mindset. God is actively involved even in this like bizarre moment. Secondly, to raise a hand against Saul is to raise a hand against the Lord. God is pervasively involved in this story. This is not a story where you can use your rational, logical mind and get away with things. God is present. To raise your hand against the Lord's anointed is to raise your hand against the Lord. Why? Because he's there. He's there. He's involved in this story. The key is to see how God is actively present in this story. So many of us have this picture of God and it goes like this. I know God was involved in some of the big moments in the story of the Bible, but the rest of the time he's just at Starbucks and he's ordered an extra large latte and he's really enjoying it. And for the last 300 years, he's kind of forgotten about his creation. And so because of that, he's not actively involved today. He might have been involved in certain parts of history, but he's not involved today. Other people carry a picture of God around like a a big clockmaker who may at some point have wound it up at some point, but then he's let the clock run. And until it runs out of steam, he doesn't really need to do anything. That's not the picture we see here. We see the picture here that Saul, even though he's an evil king, is still under this overarching responsibility of God. And for David, who is this new anointed king, even for him to raise his hand against Saul would be to raise his hand against God. Why? Because he's there. He's present. He's present in this story. Notice also how David ties moral culpability to the fact that God is present. Who can be guiltless? If if David was to raise his hand against Saul, who could be guiltless? Why? Because God is present. God is seeing his actions. God is seeing what David is doing. He's involved in this interaction. But notice also, God isn't just passively present. He's described as being actively involved in dealing with, let's call it the Saul issue. He is going to deal with the Saul issue. He is going to resolve this. And this is where the NIV really, really doesn't help us very well. Because we read this. The Lord himself will strike him. And then this is where it all gets a bit scrambled. How is the Lord going to strike him? Then the NIV doesn't do it justice. But basically there's two options. Option one, Saul will die at the end of his life. Or B, option B, he will die in battle. So how is the Lord going to strike Saul? Either old age, collapse, die... Or, option B, 
in death, in battle. But both are the active agency of God in dealing with the soul issue. So here we've got the active nature of God, not just the passive nature of God, the active nature of God in this story. So here's the question. What bit of this story is God not present in? What bit of this present is God absent in? What bit of this story could we say God has forgotten about? None of it. He's present. He's pervasively involved in his creation. Maybe you think I'm making a little bit too much of this. Let's go on. Look what we read next. In verse 12. How does David and his sidekick manage to steal the spear and the water jug? Was it by their, the craftiness of their hand? Was it because they had learnt the secret ninja arts? Is that what was going on here? In verse 12 we read this. The Lord put the army to sleep. The Lord put the army to sleep. Friends, armies never sleep. They drink. They party. They tell one another stories. But they don't sleep because sleeping is a terrifying thing when you're in an army. And yet the Lord put this army to sleep. Not Nitol. That's not what was going on here. This was the Lord who stepped into the camp and put David's enemies to sleep so that he was able to enter into the camp, take the spear, and then go and climb a hill. Friends, what bit of this story is the Lord not pervasively involved in? I'm struggling to see any part of this story where the Lord is absent. The Bible language for this is an enchanted world where God is present. If you don't like that word, another word would be this. A world where the sovereign Lord is actively involved in all things. That's what this story is telling us. That's what this story is painting for us. It's painting for us that even in the interactions between Saul, who's a bit of a dodgy king, David, who at the moment is like, okay, but he's going to go on to be a dodgy king, even in the midst of that, the pervasive activity of God is present. Maybe the picture that you and I are carrying around in our minds is just way too small of who God is. That's one of my encouragements from this passage. Maybe what you've done is you've domesticated God and you've put him in a box and say, well, we know that God's involved in, in like salvation because we sing lots of songs about that on a Sunday. But the rest of life, it's like functionally we've sliced off from the pervasive nature of God and said he's not really involved in that. Friends, this passage leads us back to see that even the interactions between one man and another man, the Lord is present and he's involved. I went through 
thinking through the Bible, trying to kind of come up with categories where positively the Lord is described as being sovereign, actively, pervasively involved in it. And here's my list. You ready? Creation. Sustaining creation. Earth, water, wind, plants, Animals, Satan and his demons, angels, sun, moon, stars, kings, nations, births, deaths, power over sin and its effects, conversion and new birth, the Christian life and final triumph, and then I just put in brackets, and everything else. The sovereign Lord is pervasively involved in everything. Is that the God who you worship? Or have you domesticated him? Put him in a little cage, like a tamed lion, good to look at on a Sunday, but not functionally roaring as the lion he is. Listen to this. Maybe you're thinking, well, this is just all Old Testament stories. Listen to how Jesus describes the world. Matthew 6, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Friends, that's a picture of pervasive, pervasive involvement in his creation. Feeding birds. I'd forget about that. That would be way down on my list, of my to-do list. And yet God is pervasively involved in his creation. I hope you're feeling uncomfortable. That's my goal in this section. I hope that you have 101 questions that go like this. How does that work? That's how the sovereignty of God should make you feel. I hope you feel uneasy. I hope you feel like you've been sold a lie by the culture that you live in, because you have been sold a lie. And the lie is called this, that you live in a flattened out, rationalistic world where there is no supernatural nature to God. That's the lie that we've been sold. The God of the Bible is a pervasive, supernatural God who is involved in all things. That's who he is. And has he changed? Has he changed? The lie that we've been sold is that we live in an autonomous world that is an autonomous system that does not need God to be involved in it. That's the lie that we've been told. And yet the story of the Bible is that God is pervasively involved in all things. Why is this important? Let me give you three things and then we'll move to my second point. Three very simple things. Why is this important? It's important because we've been called to worship God. And if we've domesticated God and we've put him in a box and we've put him in a cage and we only bring him out on Sundays, then he's not the God of the Bible. That's called idolatry. Our responsibility is to deconstruct the cage, to let God be who he is, and then for us to fall on our knees in adoration and worship of who he really is. And the way that we do that is by looking at the Bible and saying, Lord, this is who you are, and you're wonderful for it. 
We want to worship you. Secondly, when we understand that God is pervasively involved in all of creation, what it does to followers, to Christians, is it puts ballast into our hearts. Stabilizing ballast in our hearts. Stuff will happen in our lives, we won't understand what's going on, and yet we'll have this ballast. And the ballast is this, God is present. How? I have no idea. Why is this happening? I have no idea. But God is present. And it's a stabilizing ballast in our hearts. The final thing is this. For Christians, it reminds us that every moment of every day, the Lord is present. And morally, that has a massive impact on our lives. He's interested in how you view that person at work that winds you up like mad. He's interested. Morally, he sees those inner workings of our hearts and it matters to him. Why? Because he's pervasively present in his creation. The second thing that this story does wonderfully, Chris was trying to wrestle my arm to preach this passage because he wanted to preach this section, okay? It's this. The world... It shows us a world where redemption looks like death. And this is a good thing, not a bad thing. That's what this passage does for us. Notice what we read in verse 7. In verse 7 we have this wonderful picture. So Saul is inside his fortification, his human fortification. He's laying down and then we read this, that his spear is stuck in the ground near his head. Saul's spear has become the emblem or the scepter of his kingdom. So let me do a little little test for you. If you were driving down the motorway and you saw the golden arches, what would it be? McDonald's. In Saul's day, when you see the spear you see Saul's tyranny. It was an extension of his kingly rule. His Saul had almost become an extension of his arm. This is how he ruled. He ruled through his spear. He impaled people, or at least he wanted to impale people, with his kingly rule. Saul's spear had become inseparable from him. Inseparable. Until now. Saul's spear had become inseparable from him until now when David came and took it away from him. You see, David walked into his fortified castle, his camp, into the very center of Saul's power and took the emblem, as it were, of his kingly rule. We're told that he then strolled out of his camp, through a valley, up a hill, and held up the spear in front of Saul as a picture of mercy. As a picture of mercy. What's the mercy? It's this. I could have impaled you with your spear. Instead, I'm holding it up as a symbol of mercy. Saul's response, 
Then Saul said, I have sinned. And later, you considered my life precious. As David held up Saul's spear, knowing that with just one good thrust, he could have pierced Saul through. Yet instead, David is lifting it up, showing mercy to all who will see it. Friends, this is a glorious picture. Now, we've got to be honest with ourselves. Whenever you look into the Old Testament and you start to hear little echoes and little hints of who Jesus is, it's only ever an echo. We know that Saul is going to go back on his pleas to David. We know that. We know that David is going to become a monster himself. He's going to succumb to adultery. He's going to murder. We know that. But in this moment, we see a precious picture of what redemption, rescue, mercy, grace looks like that our Western, modern, technologically minded world does not understand you see our world is programmed to see performance how you live is what you will receive and yet here Saul had lived an evil life so he should have received judgment and yet David lifts up the spear as a sign of mercy a sign of mercy Like David, another shepherd king would walk into the very center of his enemy's rule and take his emblem of authority, death, and his scepter of his rule, killing. And he would walk through a valley and he would climb a hill and he would have his hands nailed to that emblem, the cross. And then he would look out over a world filled with kings and queens. That's you and I. Who had built a fortified world around ourselves with us at the center just like Saul had. And in the lifting up of his arms on the cross, it would be a symbol for all of eternity of mercy. Mercy. Upon rebellious kings and queens like you and I. That's what Jesus was doing. That's why Peter was able to say of this work of Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you are healed. This is what Jesus was doing on the cross. It was a taking of this emblem of death and holding it up as an emblem of mercy not just for a few short minutes but for eternity the cross cannot ever be seen any longer as an emblem of death it has been gobbled up in the mercy of God and for all of eternity when we look to the cross what we will see is mercy lavish mercy being poured out upon people like you and I that's what David did And that's what Jesus has done infinitely more at the cross. Can you see how this story shows how an evil spear can become a trophy of mercy? 
and how a cross, a brutal form of crucifixion, can become an emblem of mercy that runs for all of eternity. All eternity. However, I want to just push this analogy just one little bit further. You see, the Bible doesn't just say that there is like emblems of death out there. Ephesians 2 actually says the emblem of death is you and me. I was an object of wrath. I was. Me. And I've been taken into the hands of a loving shepherd king and lifted up now as a sign of mercy that when people look at my life and they say, why would God love him? The answer is mercy. There's nothing in me that would deserve his love. It's mercy. So when you look at What does it mean to be a Christian? One of the answers is that God has come in his mercy and taken your life, which was an object of wrath, an object of evil, and he's taken this implement of death and he's now held you in his hands and he is transforming you eternally into an emblem of mercy that all of creation will look at for all of time and will say, why on earth did God do that? And the only answer that they can come up with is lavish, extravagant mercy that will make all of creation fall in worship and honor honor at who our God is. However, there's one more little way of just teasing out this imagery of spear. You see, for many of us sat here in this room, it feels like your life has been pierced through with spears that have impaled you. Let me give you some examples. Circumstances that can bring traumatic pain to your life. The untimely death of a husband, wife or child. The unfaithfulness of a spouse. The pain of childlessness. The sudden and prolonged illness. The mental distress that no one else sees but you can't escape. The loss of a job. The child who has difficulties that mean they aren't like everyone else's child. And you feel that everyone is always looking at you like your child is different. Our Western, modern and technologically advanced culture would say to avoid these at all costs. And yet each one of these in the hands of a redeemer. Each one of these circumstances in the hands of a redeemer can become an implement, an emblem of mercy. That's why the Apostle Paul was able to stand three times after praying that his thorn in his flesh would be removed. And actually he hears from heaven, my grace is sufficient for you in those circumstances. Suddenly that circumstance is now being elevated as an implement, an emblem of mercy. Look here and you will see sufficient mercy for this circumstance. That's why the Apostle Paul is able to say these words that we love to quote and stick on our bumper stickers, but they are actually true. And we know that all things, God works for good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Why? Because he's pervasively present. He's sovereign and he's merciful. 
And so he's taking hold of these circumstances and he's lifting them up and they're becoming emblems of his mercy in your life. Friends, this is crazy talk to our Western, modern and technologically advanced world. But to the person who sees a God who is pervasively present, it means that he, isn't, he hasn't like abandoned you in these moments of pain. In fact, it means more than that. It means that he is actively giving you the grace and the mercy that you need to walk through these circumstances. And if we'll allow him, they will become like emblems lifted up. And the world will be able to see through your life that even in the midst of this pain, mercy and grace has been lavished upon you. How should we respond? I think there are three ways that you could respond this morning. The first is this. Gratitude that God is pervasively present. Gratitude that God is pervasively present with you. Underline you. He's here. He's in your life. I think the second response is surrender. This message leads us to a place of confrontation. And the place of confrontation is this. Who will be Lord in your life? Will it be the pervasive king? Or will it be you? Surrender is the right response to a pervasive God. Allowing his purposes to be worked out in your life. And then the second, the the final response is this. Open hands to the sufficiency of the mercy of God in your life. Nothing I've said is about quick fixes. What I have said is God is present. He is pervasively present. He will resolve the circumstances eventually. Saul will be dealt with. Yes, hallelujah, but not today. But God is still present. Pervasively. And so being open-handed towards the Lord, recognizing that He's here and He's involved in your lives, is a heart disposition. Let me pray. Forgive us, Lord, when we have tried to put you in a cage, the Sunday morning cage, the quiet time cage. And we've boxed off the rest of our lives from you, thinking that really everything else just runs on its own operating system. Forgive us, Lord. Thank you that this passage reminds us that you are pervasively present. Thank you as well that you're a God of mercy. You take implements of death and you turn them into emblems of grace. You take people who are objects of wrath and you turn them into children of God. And you even take circumstances that feel like they've pierced us through 
and you say, my grace is sufficient for you. And as we trust in you in those moments, our lives and those circumstances become emblems that point to your mercy and grace. We pray, pray, help us live in this. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You have been listening to the podcast from Emmanuel Community Church. To find out more about us, go to emmanuelcc.co.uk.